turn with me this morning to 2 Timothy chapter 1, if you would. Second Timothy chapter one. I'm going to begin reading in verse three, and we'll read down through verse seven. As Paul is speaking to Timothy, he identifies as his beloved son. His son, of course, in the faith. He was not literally his earthly father. Verse 3 says, I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience the way my forefathers did, as I constantly remember you in my prayers, night and day, longing to see you, even as I recall your tears, so that I may be filled with joy. For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure that it is in you as well. For this reason I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. May the Lord bless the reading of his word to our hearts. I want to especially focus on verse 5 this morning, but we'll be looking at some other passages as well. On May 3rd, I was listening to a portion of the autobiography of uh, C.H. Spurgeon, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And he had written a letter. So I was listening to a chapter that had a series of letters. And I came across in my listening this letter. May 1st, 1850, my dear mother, many very happy returns of your birthday. In this instance, my wish will be certainly realized, for in heaven you are sure to have an eternity of happy days. May you in your coming years live beneath the sweet smiles of the God of peace. May joy and singing attend your footsteps to a blissful haven of rest and tranquility. Your birthday will now be doubly memorable, for on the 3rd of May, the boy for whom you've so often prayed, the boy of hopes and fears, your firstborn, will join the visible church of the redeemed on earth and will bind himself doubly to the Lord his God by open profession. You, my mother, have been the great means in God's hand of rendering me what I hope I am. Your kind, warming, Sabbath evening addresses were too deeply settled on my heart to be forgotten. You, by God's blessing, prepared the way for the preached word and for that holy book, The Rise and Progress, which I believe is the rise and progress of religion in the soul by Philip Doddridge. He just refers to it briefly. But she pointed him to that book that must have encouraged him in his life. He says, if I have any courage, if I feel prepared to follow my Savior not only into the water, but should he call me even into the fire, I love you as the preacher to my heart of such courage as my praying, watching mother Impossible, I think it is, that I should ever cease to love you or you to love me, yet not nearly so impossible as that the Lord our fathers should cease to love either of us, be we ever so doubtful of it or ever so disobedient. I hope you may one day have cause to rejoice should you see me, the unworthy instrument of God, preaching to others 
Yet have I vowed in the strength of my only strength, that's capital S, in the name of my beloved, that's capital B, to devote myself forever to his cause. Do you not think it would be a bad beginning were I, knowing it to be my duty to be baptized, to shrink from it? If you are now as happy as I am, I can wish no more than that you may continue so. I am the happiest creature, I think, upon this globe. I hope you've enjoyed your visit and that it will help much to establish your health. I dare not ask you to write, for I know you're always so busy that it's quite a task to you. I hope my letter did not pain you, dear mother. My best love to you. Be assured that I would not do anything to grieve you, and I am sure that I remain your affectionate son, Charles Haddon. And I was listening to that letter, and I was thinking about uh, this week and Mother's Day, and I thought also it was the 3rd of May that I was listening to it, and it was the 3rd of May that was his mom's birthday, and it was the 3rd of May that he was going to be baptized. So that got my attention. You ever have something like that happen, something gets your attention? But that letter came from who a man who could arguably be the most well-known pastor in the English-speaking world. And that was written prior to his being baptized. He had come to Christ. He was about to take that step of being baptized, but then he gives testimony to his mother of how much of a blessing her words to him were. Apparently on Sunday evening, He says that those words were too deeply settled on my heart to be forgotten. You prepared the way for the preached word. You were the preacher to my heart. So long before he ever preached to thousands, there was somebody preaching to him, preparing him. I think we have a parallel here in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, because he not only had uh, one preacher to his heart, but two. Verse 5, Paul says, I'm mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. And I'm sure that it is in you as well. So Timothy, this letter is addressed to him, the previous letter that bears his name was addressed to him. If you follow his life in the book of Acts, you can see that Timothy is not only Paul's son in the faith, he accompanied Paul on many journeys. And if you were to look at New Testament servants around the Apostle Paul, Timothy would be distinct in terms of his association with Paul And if we looked at the big picture, his ministry was uh, certainly overshadowed by the Apostle Paul, but nevertheless, if you just looked at Timothy, sometimes people call those people surrounding the Apostle Paul the lesser lights, but there was a very bright light shining through Timothy's life. And he was prepared to serve the Lord by his grandmother, Lois, and his mother, Eunice. That's not to say he didn't have any other influence. As we look at Scripture and we see uh, examples, uh, we can find many individuals, women, 
really whether mothers are single who are an example to women as to how they ought to live and serve the Lord. And if God has called someone to motherhood, there certainly are women in the scripture that you could look at negative examples as well, but just think of Eve, Sarah, Rebecca, Leah, Rachel, Moses' mother, Jochebed, Ruth, Naomi, Hannah, the Shunammite woman that ministered to Elisha, Mary, Elizabeth, Mary and Martha, Mary Magdalene, Lydia. So there are many women, and some of those are mothers, and they are there. Why are they there? To give examples of someone who is godly, who is living in a, a life devoted to the Lord, a pattern for godly women. I think that's a wonderful way to grow in our understanding is to watch how someone else prayed or watch how someone else did what they did. We don't often see grandmothers in Scripture. They are in genealogies at times. Naomi, of course, is one of the more familiar grandmothers. As it's pointed out, she became the grandmother of Obed, who then was the father of Jesse, who was the father of David. And so got a great-grandmother to David. But here, based on what Paul says, there was a believing woman who then taught her daughter, who then taught this young man. And if you turn just a chapter or so over to chapter 3, there was a significant influence in the life of these of Timothy for these women to teach him from Scripture. Look at verse 14. It says, You, however, speaking to Timothy, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Now, that, I believe, in the New American Standard in verse 15 is the only time that that word is translated childhood. Most of the time, it's translated either infant or baby. The idea of a very young child, maybe a toddler, would be an appropriate uh, idea as you think about that word. But that tells you that Paul recognizes in Timothy's life that there was investment of the Word of God being taught to him from earliest age. And if you look at verse 15, we're going to come back to this later, when he says, you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. The New Testament had not been written yet. It's in the process of being written even as Paul writes this letter. But that tells you that there was an investment on the part of Lois and Eunice over Timothy's young life from earliest age to teach him the Scriptures. And that, of course, set him in a place where as he received more and more teaching, eventually coming under the tutelage of the Apostle Paul to be prepared to do all that God had called him to do in his life. And so there's a wonderful testimony just on the page here of Second Timothy, on the pages here, that these women were 
a significant influence in his life. First, his grandmother, and then his mother. And so this is a passing down, I would suggest, of their faith. If you turn back to chapter 1, this is a passing down of their faith from Lois to Eunice to Timothy. A passing down of a, what does he say, verse 5, the sincere faith. So there's sincere faith in Lois, sincere faith in Eunice, and now, as Paul writes this letter, he is convinced, he is persuaded, as he says in other places, that it's in Timothy as well. So I want to first of all look at a definition of sincere faith, just consider this matter of faith, and then as we continue, I want to think about really that faith passed down as we see a scriptural pattern for that. And then, as we have time, uh, some additional thoughts just about the ministry that a mother can have in the life of a child. So a definition of sincere faith. Paul, as he says these words, has an attachment, an affectionate attachment to Timothy. He says in verse Three, that he's constantly remembering Timothy in his prayers, that he longs to see Timothy. And there was some occasion, we're not told what it was, where Timothy's tears were brought now to Paul's memory. He says, I recall those. Perhaps it was a departure from one another as Timothy went to serve in one place and Paul to another, perhaps in view of the potential of Paul's persecution. But Paul says in verse 4 that he was longing to see him. Why? Because at the end of the verse it says, so that I may be filled with joy. That joy uh, was filling his heart when he saw this young man. And part of the reason for that joy was the faith that he saw in Timothy's life. That sincere faith. Paul uses the word that's, if you looked at it, just transliterated into English, it would look like unhypocritical. And that's the idea. It's an unhypocritical faith. Paul talks about unhypocritical love in other places. He talks about unhypocritical faith one other time. Uh, James talks about unhypocritical wisdom. But if you think about what's unhypocritical, what is hypocrisy? It is pretense. It is play acting. It's what the Pharisees did in the Gospels that Jesus so many times rebuked them for. It is saying things and living in an outward way, but not having a corresponding reality inwardly. It is having lips that honor God, but a heart that is far from Him. And so, an unhypocritical faith is one that is true. It's real. It doesn't put up pretenses. It's not acting. Unhypocritical faith acts even when people aren't looking. And so even within the context of a home where no one else is paying attention, these women, in exercise of their faith by their example and by their teaching, were living out this life of sincere faith before Timothy. I want you to note in the verse, Paul directs attention, 
a couple of times that this faith is personal, not only by the mention of names, but notice what he says, for I am mindful of the sincere faith within you. And then later in the verse, he says, I am sure that it is in you as well. And of course, it was in Eunice and Lois. So whatever this sincere faith, it is personal and an individual thing. It's not something that I just have in connection with other people. It's something that's very personal, internal. It's within us. God doesn't have any grandchildren. He has children. They directly relate to him. Every one of his children has personal faith and trust in him. And obviously it's internal. There may be outward evidences of faith, but faith is spoken of in Hebrews chapter 11 as the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So faith has these outward uh, actions, but what is true of someone who has genuine faith, unhypocritical faith, is there really is in their heart a conviction, a confidence in God and in the truths of His Holy Word. If you want to turn over, if you would, to Romans chapter 4 for a moment. We cited the definition of faith there in Hebrews, the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. But in chapter 4 of Romans, Paul is talking about the father of the faithful, Abraham, and he's drawing attention to faith as the way in which a person is justified. Verse 16, he says, for, it is this, for, it, for this reason it is by faith, there's our subject, in order that it may be in accordance with grace so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham. So this faith was personal to Abraham as well. And then he says, who is the father of us all? Verse 17, as it is written, a father of many nations have I made you in the presence of him whom he believed, even God. So Abraham had faith. Verse 17, that faith's object was God, and then he describes who God is, who gives life to the dead, and calls into being that which does not exist. In hope, against hope, he believed. There's another statement of his trust in God so that he might become a father of many nations according to that which had been spoken. So shall your descendants be. And if you look at the context, and we're not going to turn there, but if you look at the context of Genesis 15, what was it? It It was the stars that he was to look upon. Look up and look at the stars. So shall your descendants be. And Abraham believed God, the scripture says, and it was reckoned to him righteousness. Now, notice what it says. Following that promise, verse 19, without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb, yet with respect to the promise of God, He did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. Okay, So if we're going to look at this genuine faith that Abraham had, it had to do with the content, some promise of God. The promise to Abraham had to do with descendants. That's 
what's referenced there in verse 18 at the end of the verse, so shall your descendants be. And so that was the content or the, you would say, the promise of God that Abraham had to trust in in spite of his circumstance. What was his circumstance? He's 100 years old. And Sarah, notice what it says of her at the end of verse 19. There was not the expectation that she was going to bear a child. But God had said it. There's the promise. Now Abraham, if you were in his shoes and you're looking at the way things are, would that be difficult to believe? Would that be hard to grasp onto? Well, if you look at your outward circumstance, yes. But if you look at God, who, what does it say at the end of verse 17, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist? Yes, God could do that. And Abraham believed it in spite of his physical circumstances and Sarah's as well. And notice what it says in verse 21, and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. And then it says it was credited to him as righteousness. So there is, with a genuine faith, there's a knowledge, there's a content to that faith. When it comes to the gospel, it's the message of the cross and what Christ did. But that content of faith is followed by, accompanied by, an assurance of the truthfulness of the promise based upon the character of the one making that promise, God. And there's a dependence upon it. There's a reliance upon it. There's a resting upon it. That's faith. That's true faith. I like what the Heidelberg Catechism says. True faith is not only a certain knowledge. It involves that. He says, whereby I hold for truth all that God has revealed to us in his word, but also an assured confidence. So there's that knowledge and the confidence. And then the Catechism says, which the Holy Ghost or Holy Spirit works by the gospel in my heart, that not only to others, but to me also, remission of sin, everlasting righteousness, and salvation are freely given by God, merely of grace, only for the sake of Christ's merits. So that knowledge, the assured confidence, the resting and trusting in that, that's faith. That's sincere faith. That's unhypocritical faith. That's genuine faith. That's not works, that's something that only takes place in the heart. But if someone has that kind of faith in their heart, there will be work. There will be things done in the life. Paul, as he described, and I ask you to turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 5. Paul said, Here's the other time he mentions a sincere faith. He says, but the goal, verse 5, verse Timothy 1, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So those three things together are producing love. The sincere faith is at the heart of it. It's the foundation of it. 
And so that sincere faith acts by love. Self-giving, self-sacrificing love. When there's genuine faith, Paul says it numbers of times, when there's genuine faith, there's love. You don't see faith, true faith, alone. James' point in the epistle of James is that true faith works. It's not alone in terms of Someone declares it and then doesn't do anything. No, the demons do that. But someone who has true faith, there are works in their life, and they can be characterized by love. So this sincere faith that Paul is testifying to in the life of Timothy was also in Lois and also in Eunice, and Paul knew what it looked like. Of course, Paul himself had a sincere faith. That is not a Sunday-only faith. If that's the case, it's hypocritical. If faith is only for what others see and know, not God, then it's hypocritical. True faith doesn't just act based upon what others see. That's a Pharisee. True faith acts when no one is looking but God. And by this point, Paul had observed Timothy's life and he had seen that there were evidences in his life that pointed to a reality of faith that demonstrated his trust in God and his obedience to God. And that same faith that Paul is speaking of regarding Timothy had been passed down. That was Lois's life. That was Eunice's life. So Timothy, to possess this faith, was just, he was in a line in a generation that followed two other generations. He had received what he had been taught, and it is a wonderful thing when a child receives what their parents teach. Not every child does. Lois, apparently, in her life, taught Eunice. And I want to take a little time to consider not just a definition, sincere faith, but that sincere faith passed down through generations. And let's consider Lois, who is called the grandmother of Scripture by one person. Paul uses that word to describe her, and she really doesn't have much of a focus anywhere but here and also in 2 Timothy chapter 3. I do believe there was some influence that she must have had for Paul to draw attention to her in this passage and the teaching of Scripture that Timothy had. But Paul says, notice the verse, for I'm mindful of the sincere faith within you which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois. First. Now, he could be applying that first to both Lois and Eunice, but we'd have to say it does certainly apply to Lois. So Lois's faith preceded Timothy's faith. What did that mean? That meant that in some way in her life, she was taught God's Word, she embraced the truth of God's Word, and she started living a life of sincere faith. Now, based on the timing here, you're going to have to stick with me for a moment, based on the timing of what, of Paul's interaction with Timothy, Lois's faith I believe, preceded even Paul coming to preach the gospel to the people there in Lystra. Why do I say that? Well, if you look at the, uh, again at chapter 3, if 
if they had taught Timothy from his childhood, Timothy, by the time Paul meets him, is a young man. Timothy, by the time Paul takes him on his missionary journey, had a good report. We'll look at Acts 16. But there's a transition time taking place here in the New Testament. The transition is between the message that the Old Testament foretold about the Messiah, that there was a Messiah coming. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, Unto us a son is born, unto us a child is given. And all of that revelation, in addition to Isaiah, there's Micah and throughout the prophets and the Psalms and even the book of Moses or the books of Moses, there was a foretelling of who the Messiah would be. And for those in the generation when Christ came into the world, that news was spreading. The news of Jesus, the Messiah, as having come into the world. And even you could say, although there were certainly indications when he was born and there was testimony when he was born at the temple to Simeon and Anna, that the message of Jesus as the Messiah would have had to spread throughout the world. So what would a believing Jew know at a point right before Paul came into town? You understand what I'm saying? In other words, this is a point of transition at which Paul is coming in and he is saying that the Messiah had to suffer and Jesus, who I am preaching to you, is the Messiah. Now, those Jews would have to respond at that point with belief in the message. If they resisted that message, they'd be rejecting the Messiah. They'd be rejecting the truth that the Word of God teaches. And so for Lois... However old Timothy was, and for Eunice, there apparently was faith. Faith that had embraced the truth. Faith that was fed by God's Word. And you could think about those individuals who were at the temple. Remember when, when Simeon came to the temple in Luke chapter 1 and, and 2 there, or chapter 2 I believe it is, and he comes to the temple and he had it, it, was, it was told him by the Holy Spirit that before he died, he would see the Messiah. Okay, so is, is Simeon a believer at that point? Yeah, he's a believer. He just hasn't held baby Jesus in his arms. And now my eyes have seen your salvation. So it's that moment of revelation. And what a wonderful thing it would have been for Simeon to come and finally know who the Messiah is and actually to hold him. But that message had to eventually be proclaimed throughout the Roman Empire and throughout the world to Jews who had never been there. Whether Lois and Eunice had ever been to Jerusalem or knew the things regarding Jesus as the Messiah, it, it doesn't seem that they are because Paul went to Lystra to proclaim the gospel to them. So let's take a look for just a moment. Look at Acts chapter 16. Actually, Acts 14. And then we'll look at 16. If you follow Paul's missionary journeys, this is his first one. He healed a man by God's power, of course, in the name of Christ, who had never walked, verse 8 tells us. And after that, the crowds wanted to offer sacrifice to him and Barnabas, Paul. 
verse 19, where Paul had previously preached, it says in verse 19, But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. But while the disciples stood around him, he got up and entered the city. The next day he went away with Barnabas to Derbe. And after they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And I'll stop reading there, but that's a kind of an understatement from a man who had been stoned in their midst in the past, right? Turn over to chapter 16. Several years have passed. Paul and Barnabas had thought they wanted to go and see these places where they had preached the gospel, see the believers that were there. That ended up not being the plan because there was a disagreement about who to take. So Barnabas took John Mark and Paul took Silas, and then Paul starts on his journey, and he comes to, same places, verse 1 of chapter 16, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. And a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. And he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted this man, and he uses the word for a man, adult man, to go with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. And it goes on to describe the journey, but there's a description of what took place to join Timothy to this company that was preaching the gospel. But what does it say here about Timothy's family? It says, verse 1, a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer. So we're actually thinking about Lois. We're thinking about not Eunice, who is referenced here, who's married to a Gentile, but, but Lois, the grandmother. So at this point, there's a Jewish woman who is, and that word believer can be applied to someone who's believing in Jesus Christ. It can also have the idea of faithfulness. Okay, And I would suggest in the case of Eunice, what we've read about her in Second Timothy, that if she was teaching Timothy from the point of birth or being a young child, that she was not only eventually a believer in Christ, but she was faithful. That she had taken God's word and was teaching it. And when someone came into town who's preaching the Messiah, she welcomed that message. And when she heard that the Messiah's name was Jesus and that the Messiah had to suffer, she believed the message that Paul was proclaiming. Eunice did. And so did Lois. Because that faith that Timothy had first dwelt in these women. But there would have to be a point for each of them, for Lois, for Eunice, and then for Timothy, all to embrace the message of Jesus as the Messiah. And they did. And so there's a grandmother here that was instrumental in teaching her daughter, embracing the faith, teaching, no doubt, the grandchild. Eunice eventually teaching when she has a child. She's teaching her own son. And that is a, a, 
you could say, a faith that is being passed down at a transitional time in God's providence in history. Now, before we think about Eunice, I just want to encourage those of you who are grandmothers or future grandmothers, don't minimize the influence you can have or do have by just simply teaching God's Word to grandchildren. Don't minimize the influence that you can have by your example. Spurgeon, who wrote that letter to his mother, also said about going back in older years to his boyhood haunts, and he said this, he said, there's something pleasant in those old stairs where the clock used to stand, and in the room where grandmother was wont to bend her knee, and where we had family prayer. Here's a, a young child who later in life remembers his grandmother praying, bending her knees in prayer. In fact, there's a funny story as well. He used to go and visit his grandparents, and he says, during one of my many holidays at Stamborn, which is where they lived, I had a varied experience which I'm not likely to forget. My grandfather was very, was very fond of Dr. Watts' hymns, that would be Isaac Watts, I believe, and my grandmother, wishing to get me to learn them, promised me a penny for each one that I should say to her perfectly. He said, I found it an easy and pleasant method of earning money and learned them so fast that grandmother said she must reduce the price to half penny each and afterwards a farthing if she did not mean to be quite ruined by her extravagance. He says there's no telling how low the amount per hymn might have sunk, but my grandfather said he was getting overrun with rats and offered me a shilling a dozen for all I could kill. He said, I found at the time that the occupation of rat catching paid me better than learning hymns. But I know which employment, he says, has been the more permanently profitable to me. This kind of gives you a funny image of a little boy running around killing rats and singing hymns. <laughs> but he says, no matter on what topic I am preaching, I can even now in the middle of any sermon quote some verse of a hymn in harmony with the subject. The hymns have remained with me while those old rats for years have passed away and the shillings I earned by killing them have been spent long ago. But what was retained in his memory and eventually influenced his preaching was all those hymns. And his grandmother just said, I'll give you something if you just learn those hymns. What an investment. Training him for ministry. Now you may not motivate your grandchildren that way through money to memorize hymns, but your visits to your grandchildren, your words to your grandchildren, are significant. I have some very distinct memories of my grandparents, and they did not live close to us, and so our visits to them were on holidays and other occasions. But I can remember time spent, I can remember words said, I can remember things done. I'm thankful to have had a grandfather. My grandmother on my dad's side passed away when I was too young to remember her. But my grandfather on my dad's side, even into my adult life, spent time with me and his words were very significant to me. His prayers for me. 
And so don't minimize that. Lois finds her name in Holy Scripture in part because of those years spent likely not in any kind of a spotlight, just in her home or in Eunice's home, teaching God's Word, preparing Timothy. Now, what about Eunice? What about her? We're told in Acts chapter 16 that she married a Greek, and because of the contrast in verse 1, it does seem that he was an unbeliever. Because of the fact that Timothy was never circumcised, we see in verse 3, Paul said, uh, Paul wanted him to go with him, but he took him and had him circumcised because of the Jews, which would have perceived that as a problem that he had been born into a Jewish home, at least a Jewish mother, and had not had uh, that performed as an eight-day-old child. Now, we don't know what Eunice's part in that was. We don't know if she asked and her uh, husband resisted. Uh, We really don't know the circumstances of it. All we know is in verse 1 here of Acts 16, and then again in 2 Timothy chapter 1, that she's a believing woman, and according to 2 Timothy 3, she taught her child from earliest days the Holy Scriptures. Just a woman faithfully teaching her son in a home that appears to be split. Uh, uh, her, Her husband was not a believer, but she's faithfully teaching, even though she doesn't have the support, encouragement, apparently, of the father, She's teaching him the Word of God. Now, we would say, based on what Scripture teaches regarding the home, that in terms of God's plan for Israel, it was to be husband and wife, father and mother, that were teaching the children. In the New Testament, we have in Ephesians chapter 6 that fathers are not to provoke their children to wrath, but instead bring them up in the nurture the instruction, the admonition of the Lord. And we would say, based on scriptural teaching, when there is the teaching of a father and the teaching of a mother, that that's the way it ought to be. But in light of unbelief, there are times where one parent or another is tasked with that. And I would guess, I don't think it's too difficult to guess, that that would be a difficult thing for one parent without the support of another to do that. And yet, that's what God's expectation is. Uh, He said to Israel, Deuteronomy chapter 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all all your might. These words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. So the call is to all Israel... And the call is to take God's commands and to apply them to the heart and then teach. The next verse says, You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. Psalm 78, For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel which he commanded our fathers that they should teach them to their children that the generation to come might know, even the children yet to be born, that they may arise and tell them to their children that they should put their confidence in God and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments and not be like their fathers, 
a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not prepare its heart and whose spirit was not faithful to God. So what Lois and what Eunice are doing is they're just passing down the faith. They're teaching God's words to this child that comes into the home, and however long he is there, there's instruction. And I would suggest even beyond that, if you look at Proverbs, there are conversations between a father and an adult child in Proverbs. So that instruction doesn't stop. It certainly changes and adjusts based upon age and receptivity and that sort of thing. But this is just a faith being passed down through generations. Hezekiah, at one point, was about to die. And his argument in prayer to the Lord as to why he wanted to live was, number one, he said, it's the living who give thanks to you as I do today. But then he said, a father tells his sons about your faithfulness. Why did he want to keep on living? What was one of his reasons for existence was to teach his son about the faithfulness of God. So what Eunice and what Lois were doing was really in keeping with a scriptural pattern. Again, the scriptural pattern in a home where both parents are believers, it's father and mother. The Proverbs say, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Indeed, they are a graceful wreath to your head and ornaments about your neck. And so there's an important aspect to it, too, the child that receives it. So I would just say this to those of you, certainly parents, fathers and mothers, but mothers especially today, don't minimize the significance of those conversations And they start little, right? They start even without words. You're just trying to teach them words. But as you teach them words, teach them God's words. And you never know what's going to stick. You never know what is going to impress upon their heart that's going to deepen their understanding of God. But if you're sharing the words of God and you're teaching them about God, then certainly it's God that will be in their mind and heart. And at some point, by God's grace, they will receive him. That's our hope and prayer. I came across a story about Frances Ridley Havergal, who's a hymn writer, sung many of her hymns. She lived from 1836 to 1879. She was the daughter of a pastor, a hymn writer. Her dad was a hymn writer. And at one point in his life, he was unable to get out of his home. He was so sick that he had to stay home. And he, during that time, would write hymns and he would sing. Sometimes little Francis would sing just like her dad. And Sunday evenings, they would have a time where they would sing hymns together. Just think about this child who eventually became a hymn writer and all of that sowing in her life of what she eventually would be. But when she was 11 years old... Her mother became ill, and her mother apparently knew that she was about to die. And she said to her daughter, which I think Francis did not understand the significance of it at the time, but she said, Fanny, dear, that's what she called her nickname, pray to God to prepare you for all that he's preparing for you. Pray to God 
to prepare you for all that he's preparing for you. And that year on July 5th, her mother passed into eternity. A few weeks before she died, Francis Havergal said, the words Mama taught me in 1848 have been a life prayer with me. This preparing goes on as when gaining one horizon, another and another spreads before you. So every event prepares us for the next that is prepared for us. So those words which were really probably directed toward what was just about to happen actually became not only significant later on as she understood what her mom was saying, but then she thought about them through her life. She said this, another thing she said just before she died herself, she said, Mama's words I also remember, Dear child, you have your own little bedroom now. It ought to be a little Bethel. She said, I couldn't make head or tail at the time what she meant and often wondered till some months after, after she read Genesis 1, she said, that, or, uh, Genesis, she said, I, I, I came to understand what Bethel was. It's the house of God. It's a place devoted and dedicated to God. She said, having that small room to myself developed me much as a child. It was mine and to me it was the coziest little nest in the world. But what her mom said is that room that you have, that's all your own, is actually should be a place where you worship God. And she's remembering that at the age of 42 when God was about to take her into eternity. Little words, significant words. So how important is it to teach children God's words? Mothers certainly teach their children many things, but to convey to their children the object of faith, God and his words, how critical is that? And I am thankful at our church here for our children's ministries, but nothing can take the place of that. Nothing. God can overcome, certainly. One writer said, to have the kind of teaching that Timothy had, that's not every son's privilege, for there are mothers, even among Christians, who shirk their responsibility in this respect. In fact, there are children of God who later affirm that they never received a single spiritual blessing from their mother. But at other times, God directs matters differently and inspires maternal hearts to plan and execute a holy activity. Many years later, a converted son recalls that activity as the dearest and holiest of his memories of her. Now, that could hit you at a point where you think, I wish I, am, I, wish I would have done more based on the age of my children or the circumstances of my life. What I would encourage you about is if you still have a relationship with that child, you're still that child's mother. And for fathers, you're still that child's father. Adult children do listen to what their parents say. They don't always receive it. They might even appear to reject it or repeatedly reject it. But maybe that word that you give to them will continue to work in their heart and maybe you'll be dead and gone. 
but you will have done your duty before God. And there is no telling of what could happen when you preach the gospel to someone. Years later, that seed that you sow could come to fruit. But it's not our job to produce faith. We can't do that, but we can sow the seed. And so sow the seed. And there are times where you may need to have a heart-to-heart and say, look, son, look, daughter, and you just tell them what your heart is for them. And when you do, I would hope, turn if you would to 2 Timothy chapter 3, that what would be in your mind and heart, because you meditated on yourself, are the words of God. That sincere faith that is passed on is fed by God's word. Paul says in verse 10, you followed my teaching. So Lois and Eunice were not alone. They actually found a spiritual father for Timothy. But Paul says in verse 14, you, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. Now, Paul could be talking about himself at that point. Ultimately, the subject matter is God's word, But you know, based on verse 15, that he's talking about his mother and grandmother because he says, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. If your child is ever going to be saved at a young age, at an old age, it's going to be through the Word of God. Lois and Eunice were teaching Timothy from a young age, and it appears at a young age he received the truth. That's not always the case. Read church history. Sometimes it takes life experience, and sometimes children have to learn the hard way. Sometimes they have to lose a parent for them to realize that they too are going to enter eternity, and they need to turn from their sins. Read the story of John Newton who lived with his wicked father. His mother had passed away. There was not much grace coming to his life for a significant period of time, but later in life, during the midst of a storm, God had got a hold of his heart because he thought he was going to die. And this man who'd been mocking God and blaspheming God, God took a hold of his heart and changed him and put him into the ministry. And we sing Amazing Grace because of the Amazing Grace to that man. But what happened when he was a child? He used to listen to his mother teaching him hymns and teaching him scripture, and that investment years and years later paid off. And it was obviously God who brought about his salvation, as it's always God who brings salvation, but he brings it through his word. It is the law of God that is perfect, that converts the soul. It's the testimony of the Lord that is sure, making wise the simple. It is the precepts of the Lord that are right, that bring joy to the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They're righteous altogether. If a child is ever going to be converted and changed and made wise to salvation... It's going to be through the Word of God. And so keep on teaching. Or start back up. Salt and pepper your conversations. Maybe make them the stake of the conversation. 
but be sure to share the Word of God, which had power to bring you to life if you're a believer. Don't lose hope. We're not done yet. Until that child is in eternity, there's still opportunity. And I, I don't know everyone that I'm talking to this morning. I do know some of you have had conversations with, and your heart is for your child. Of course, our heart is for our children. Keep on sharing God's Word. That gospel message is the power of God unto salvation. And beyond that, it will train them up. What does Paul say here? All Scripture, verse 16, is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Timothy is now the man of God. Now he's equipping pastors. Now he's ministering to churches. Again, he's one of the people overshadowed by the ministry of the Apostle Paul, but if you look at Timothy's life, he had a uh, quite a span of influence in the churches. The churches knew him. And it's not to build up Timothy, but I'm just saying, as you look at what God's Word did for Timothy, not only to bring him to salvation, but then to equip him for the work that he had to do. What an equipping. And that's where it is. It's God's holy Word. So there is such a thing as a sincere faith. And, of course, that's what we're looking for. And it, this is not to say, I hope we don't come away from this message saying that Lois and Eunice are the reason. God is the reason. But they were instruments in God's hands in his earliest days to begin to shape, by the Word of God, his thinking and his life. And eventually, God brought Timothy and Lois and Eunice all to faith in Christ and equipped Timothy to serve the Lord. And so we all have a part, don't we, in this kind of ministry, and this is where I'm going to just make a, a more general application, that the kind of thing that's taking place in this family, this kind of spiritual mothering, in the case of Paul and his relationship to Timothy's spiritual fathering, as you take a step back and look at what we're doing in discipleship, as we reach out with the gospel message, there's a sense in which we have that kind of relationship with someone who doesn't know the Lord, who then, through our preaching of the gospel, ministry to them, they come to know the Lord. It's kind of a spiritual fatherhood or spiritual motherhood that we can then have. And Paul even speaks in those terms in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. It was that kind of discipling relationship that he had with those believers. And so there's a sense in which what's taking place in generations in this home, you think, well, that, based on my circumstances, that couldn't be me, that doesn't apply to me. Wait a second, this applies to all of us. We all can have this kind of influence as we share the Word of God, as we proclaim God's Word. It may be one of our children, wonderful, praise the Lord. It may be someone else's home. And maybe some other individual who then has opportunity to preach the gospel to those under their care. How has the Lord called you? Where are you at? You will find your place in what God is doing with regard to bringing others to faith and bringing them to maturity through the Word of God. May the Lord help us all to share God's Word, to teach God's Word, and especially for mothers there's, when, when there's a relationship that 
a child has from earliest days, how significant that can be. God could do something like he did with a Samuel, with a Francis Ridley Avergal, with a Timothy. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, we do thank you for the power of your word. Your word is truth. Sanctify us today by the truth. We pray, Lord, if we have lost heart because of the reality of unbelief around us, Lord, help us to be encouraged again. Even as Abraham looked at his circumstances, he could have been discouraged by what appeared to be realities, but he had a relationship with you, the one who gives life to the dead, who brought everything into existence, who if anyone could change circumstances, Lord, you could, and you did. And so we pray that our faith in God today would grow Our trust in you would be sure and certain. And we pray that we might have the influence that you've called us to. If you've called us to be a mother, called us to be a father, if you've called us to be a spiritual mother or father to someone else, help us to remember that our words, uh, as we share the word of God, can have and carry great significance and have far-reaching implications. Help us to be sure to share the truth communicate the truth and reinforce that as we have time and over time and give exhortation to believe it and to follow it. And we pray that all of our lives would be shaped by your word. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.